Well, it is the first Sunday of Lent. We had a great time on Wednesday night. Ash Wednesday, really enjoyed that service. Ash Wednesday is one of those services that just is, I don't know, it's like a fun, strange, fun service where we celebrate death but enjoy it in a way. So it's kind of strange to see how that all comes together. But I do enjoy an Ash Wednesday service and we had a great time being a part of that. So we're in Lent at the moment and Lent really is a time when we tend to stop and reflect on our lives. It's a time when we can see what's happening. What are the things that are taking place in our lives? We go through life, we should continually be living in a state of repentance and thinking about what is it that God wants us to be kind of, how do we become more like Christ? What is some of the baggage we need to shed? But Lent really is that intentional time when we actually stop we see how this world possibly has polluted us and how we can renew and restore our faith during this season. I want to challenge you with two questions this morning as we start off our time. The first question is this, what needs to die in your life? And I know it's a pretty heavy question to say, what are the things in your life that just might need to die? And let me reword it in a different way. Are there maybe some things in your life that you need to let go of? Are there some things that you might need to stop and say, this I need to let go of. If I am to move forwards in a sense of renewal of my faith, a restoration of my faith, and a flourishing of my faith, what are the things that I need to let go of so that God can grow through me and in me? Let's turn our attention now to John chapter 12, 20 to 26. It reads as follows. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And this is the word of the Lord for the people of God. God. What's going on in this passage? It's kind of strange to see what's actually unfolding here. We have a contingent of Greek-speaking people. They could be either Jewish people that speak Greek, or they could be actually Greek by nationality as well. But they come to Philip. The reason they come to Philip is more than likely because Philip was a Greek name, and they identified him as one of their own. He came from an area that was known to speak Greek, and the area was known as a Greek area, Bethesda as well. And so there's a sense where they might be getting an idea of what's happening with Jesus, through Jesus, and they now want an audience with Jesus. So they want an in, and they believe Philip is their in. So they're coming to, to Philip. They say, Philip, can we get to speak to Jesus? Can we, can, is there a way that we can have kind of an audience? Can we chat to him? What's going on? Philip then goes to Andrew. No idea why, but he goes to Andrew. And the two of them then go and speak to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He just simply says this, not to the Greek-speaking people, probably to Philip and Andrew and the disciples. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we understand that the idea of being glorified is that concept of the crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, to be glorified. So is this significant? This is actually incredibly significant. Because up until this stage, 
in the Gospel of John, there have been probably three occasions where Jesus actually says this. He says, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. In fact, we see that in John chapter 2, verse 4. We see it in chapter 7, verse 30, and 8, verse 20, where he will say, the hour has not yet come. Now he says, the hour has come. And what's triggered this is the fact that these Greek-speaking people are coming towards him. He goes, the hour is here. Interesting. So what's that all about? Well, if you're in your Bibles and you kind of just look down the passage to verse 32, you'll see that Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, what is lifted up? Speaks of the cross, the crucifixion. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. He says, I will draw all people to myself. And he uses this analogy of the seed. And so there's a sense where he's understanding that in a way he, he well, not in a way, he will actually die. And through his death, that will multiply to nations, to all people. And he's seeing already how the Greeks are coming. And he knows that he needs to step into something else there as well. Something more is taking place. This is, as you read this and we read the commentators, they say this. The death and the resurrection of Jesus actually triggered a great missionary harvest. That's interesting. The death and the resurrection of Jesus triggered a great missionary harvest. Now here's, here's where it gets, it gets complicated. Do you know, nothing can be simple in life, right? It gets complicated. We have this play between life and death. We have this concept of death almost being a good thing, but is death a good thing? Well, actually, I don't think it is a good thing. And, and even in the Bible, we understand that death is not always considered something that is good. Death is, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 55 I think it is uh, Paul says death where is your victory grave where is your sting uh, or death with your sting grave where is your victory and he's basically saying that in Christ and the death of Christ the resurrection of Christ this enormous enemy called death has been conquered if we go to Revelation chapter 1 we see John actually says uh, he says I saw him it was Jesus he came and he said behold I hold the keys of death and Hades and so death is painted as something that is actually not good so we see death as a bad thing we understand it is we think of war and people die it's not good there are, we are people who have been created by God he has breathed the breath of life into us we have the breath of the living God. We live through Christ. And when life is extinguished in whatever way, there is something incredibly broken and hurting. And it is wrong on, on, on so many levels. But we're now stuck with a dilemma because in this situation, we have the, the, the seed that falls to the ground, but it dies. But as it dies, it multiplies and it becomes a good thing. So now we have this kind of this contrast that we have to try and balance out. So there are some things, if we think about it, you think about death, some things that are okay to die. All right? I'm not talking about my plants. They just die naturally. <laughs> my brother told me this morning about plants. He says we should, I was on the phone with him on the way here, he said, when it comes to plants, he heard somebody talk about this. When your plants die, it's because they did not have a will to live. <laughs> Got nothing to do with the way he looked after them. I'm like, I'm going to stick with that. I like that. That works for me. But think about it. There are some times 
if you are suffering with a disease, let's say if you have cancer and you're suffering with it, that tumor, when it dies, when cancer is killed, that is not a bad thing. There's, some, there, there's this almost this, how do we kind of hold these two tensions that some things that when they die, it seems like a good thing, but often when things die, it seems like a bad thing. So death is not always bad, but sometimes it can lead to great blessing, but we need to understand the context of these things. In this passage that we read in chapter uh, 12, 24, it says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, into the earth, and it dies... In other words, without that death, there can be no life. And that speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk more about that a bit later. But it still keeps us in this tension between life and death. What is good? What is bad? How do we deal with that? The truth is that even in death, for us on this earth, death is a doorway to a better life as well. And for those that are left behind, it's incredibly painful but for those that leave to be with Jesus, it is a great blessing. And all these things we need to keep in attention. I think about this and I talk about this because there are certain things I believe in our lives that need to die. There are things that I think break down this world, things that in our lives that we need to let go of, things that we need to allow to fall to the ground. And I believe that when some of those things fall to the ground, it can in fact lead to a great harvest in our spiritual life. It can lead to a great harvest in the world around us as well. What are some of the things that I believe need to die or perish in our lives and in this world? I think for me, simply put this way, the kingdom of me, the kingdom of me needs to die so that the kingdom of God can live through me and produce a great harvest. Have a look at this passage of scripture in Galatians chapter 2. This is such an, I mean, there's something actually quite powerful about this. Think about the concepts of life and death and how they play out amongst one another. Paul says, through the law, I died. He's saying that's a good thing. I died so that I might, watch this, life, live to God. You see how the, the two are playing against each other? Through death there came life. I could live for God. Then he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That speaks about death taking place. It is no longer I who live because me, the I, the, the kingdom of me, the kingdom of I has been killed it has been crucified but christ then because i no longer live he can live in me live through me but it is christ who lives in me and the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me there we see that play and that connection between those two thoughts of death and life coming together again when i think of this concept of sin sin is the thing that needs to die that concept of elevating me, I, I always, the best way for me to describe this concept of sin is to take the word sin, you take the S, the I, the N, you take the S and the N, you push them aside, and right in the middle you've got a really, really, really big I. One of the best ways I've heard sin described is when I put I on the throne. And I make my decisions about what I want, I need, and what I think is best for I. And the way that Christianity works is that we take I and we say I needs to come off the throne and Jesus needs to go on the throne. And so we no longer live for me, we live for him. And that is the concept. Think about that for a second. Examples of sin in our lives and the sacrifice of I and how I sometimes gets in the way. Sin happens in our lives when we do things that I want, 
I like, but God clearly labels as wrong. I think it's good. I think it's the right way. It's good for me, but God has clearly said it's wrong. And if we look at the Scripture, we see throughout Scripture there are listings of things where they say, hey, these are things you should not do. Paul says it, all, all sorts of people. There's these lists, Galatians chapter 5, when he speaks about the fruit of the flesh, he says this, the works of the flesh are obvious. Then he says, these are things that tell you that you're living for I, that you're living in the flesh. Things like fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, and it goes on and on and on and on. But we pretty much have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And there's a sense of what, if we look at the Bible and the Bible says, that's right and this is wrong, we stick to what's right, then we're like, hey, we got this covered. And Paul even says in Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh are obvious. I'm not sure. I'd like to take another look at that. Do you know why I say it's not always obvious? He says it's obvious, and I think it is obvious if we think about it, but we live in a world where culture has basically said to us, that which is right is wrong, that which is wrong is right. Isaiah chapter 5 has taught, it teaches us and says, you will call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so there's a sense where we say, surely this is wrong or surely this is right. And in a sense, the world has corrupted our understanding of right and wrong. And although we come to the Bible and we can look at certain things and say, hey, that's right, that's wrong. There's still a sense where there are some things in our lives where I still sits on the throne. Let me, let me break this down just a little bit. I believe sin also happens when I do what I want. And in so, so doing, I violate the values and the principles of God. Now, we understand that there's lists of things we shouldn't do. We understand that. We don't live in a legalistic world. We live in a place of grace, and I get that. But we need to understand what this concept of eyes. Eyes on the throne. There are some things that may seem good, neutral, but not bad, but could still be sin. So there's explicit sin, but sometimes there could be sin that's implied, and we could kind of get an implicit understanding of this thing. Let me, let me explain this to you so we understand the concept of sin in the context of I. We know that God needs to be on the throne, the I needs to come off, and Jesus needs to be on the throne, but I can sometimes make decisions that seem like they are right or okay, but actually are sinful. Now, let me give you some examples. We have this wonderful thing called preferences. I like my preferences. I have a preference for something. Now we're all entitled to our preferences, fair enough? But what happens if your preferences violate the principles of God? Have you stepped into a place of sin? I'm getting a lot of looks at the moment. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of time I fight for what I want because that's what I prefer. And in so doing, I may well be undermining the work that God wants to do through me. I'll give you an example of this. This is, this is an example. I've, I've been in several churches. The one church I was in, there was a time when a lot of young people started coming into the church. And as a lot of young people came to the church, 
things changed, like the style changed. The, me the message was the same all the time. The style changed. Maybe the worship's changed. Things changed a little bit. And I remember one day a guy stood up and said, the devil has come into this house. And he walked out. Well, we were glad when the devil left the house. But anyway. But there were, there, were, there were older people that sat there. And all these young people came in. And you know what? The thing is with young people is that they are never tidy, they never neat, and they never fit in a box. You know what I mean? I'm like getting older now, and I like things a certain way. They're like all over the show. And it was just, it was messy church. You know what I mean? But God was doing a wonderful thing, and the church was growing, and people were coming in, and people getting saved. Many of those young people today are actually serving in the ministry because of what happened at that season in the life of the church. But there were older people that sat there, and this is what they would say. They would say, you know what? This is not what I like or prefer, but God is doing something in their lives. Or they could have said, now that's what they did, and I really celebrate them. Or they could have said, I don't like it. We've got to do it this way because I like it that way. Now think about it for a second. By exercising your right to a preference, you have just blocked off the grace that God wants to share to a whole generation of people just by locking down in that situation. We see the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. But you could get to the place where you're loving yourself and your preferences more than you love your neighbor and you're prepared to say, hey, but that's, this is what I want. So preferences are not bad, but if we enforce them to the point where they undermine the work that God is doing, they can in fact turn to sin. I'll give you another example. Who loves missions? Okay, you shouldn't have put your hands up anyway. <laughs> we, have, we live in a world that is so driven by comfort that everything we do, in fact, if you want to make a lot of money with a product, find something that makes everybody's life just a little bit more comfortable. I'll give an example. We now have little vacuum cleaners that run around our houses automatically to clean up. <laughs> Why? Because we don't want to do it ourselves. We want it to be comfortable. Little robots that go cleaning the house and off they go and then you trip over them and fall and whatever, end up in hospital. But anyway, everything we do is about comfort. So we could easily say, God, I love missions and I want to thank you, Lord, today that you're calling me to the beautiful white sands of Hawaii because you've called me to this place. I know you've called me to this place. You hear what I'm saying? How many people say, well, I really feel called to like malaria infested, the deep jungles of South America with all these big, bad, ugly snakes and things that eat me alive. Yeah, I really feel called to that. You know what? It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. But, but here's the point once again. When we elevate what I want and my comfort, and understand me just for a second. I don't want everybody to pack up and go to South America. You know, we... There are things you can do. You have to live within your limitations. God brings us to a place in, in a life. We, we, we work these things through. We pray these things through. But if we end up making every single decision about what we are most comfortable with, we're actually making a decision for I, not God. And so suddenly we have this thing. Let me, let me give you another one, which is, I mean, this is the worst one. We hate this one. This is terrible. This big thing called pride. I don't know. You should be proud of some things you do. I believe in that. But there is something called pride that can be really sinful. One of the big issues when it comes to things like, say, a married couple, and you sit and you're sitting with a married couple. If you want a marriage to work, 
You can give a big amen after this comment. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. There is a wonderful thing called humility. Amen? amen. Because somewhere in your marriage, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry. And most, most situations, or a lot of situations, where people are stuck in marital conflict is because somebody doesn't want to simply say, I'm sorry. Why? Because, well, I am right. And I need to get what I want. And I believe that I have been injured in this. I. Do you know that this concept of reconciliation between people, unless we find humility in Christ, it'll never work? Around the world, nations are fighting against nations, but everybody's just exalting the I, and things are breaking down. And so there's a sense where we can go to the Bible and we can say, oh, here's the list of the things we can do, the things we can't do. But there's also a place where we need to say, well, maybe some of those things are actually implied in the fact that we elevate ourselves, we take the Lordship of Christ out of our lives, we put ourselves on the throne, and we're making decisions that we want, are comfortable for us, and suit us. At that point, we may well have stepped into a place where we have dethroned God and we have re-enthroned ourselves. Now, it sounds quite, how do we say, Heavy, is that the right word? But the point is, we're in a season of Lent. And I want us to be challenged. I want us to go into the season and say, hey, maybe there's something in my life that I actually need to surrender. Something I need to let go of. Something I need to say, God, you need to be exalted in this place. We sin when we put self above and before God's principles, values, and teachings. But something beautiful can happen when we humbly allow certain things to die in our lives. And I started our time together by asking the question, what needs to die in your life? And I'll ask that question again. Maybe another question is, what do you need to let go of so that your faith can be restored, renewed, and flourish? Maybe, I don't know what it is. It could be unforgiveness. It could be some kind of sinfulness that you have that you need to let go of. Whatever it is, what is it that you need to let go of in this season in order to allow God to flourish in and through your life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 helps us to understand a little bit of this dilemma that we see on the cross between this, this tension between death and life. Jesus dies on the cross. Is that a good thing? That's a terrible question to ask because there's no right answer there. Jesus, the lover of my soul, the one who truly, the, the one who gives himself for us, the one who sacrificially comes from heaven to earth, goes to the cross and dies, and we need to say, hey, that's a good thing. I don't want to see Jesus die. I, we don't want to see this concept of Jesus dying is not good, but the concept of sin dying with Jesus is a beautiful gift that he gives us. And so as Jesus goes to the cross, he understands that in his life, there is death that will take place. His body will die, but with the death of his body, so will sin. Sin itself will also die in that moment. And from there, with the resurrection, we will be partakers in life. And there we see that tension of the death and the life right there. 1 Peter 2.24 reads as follows, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. What happens? His body, our sins, come together in that place so that free from sins we might live for righteousness 
by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus took the sin of the world to the cross. He died on that cross so that through his death we might find life. One last question for you to think about and ponder this week. What harvest, what fruitfulness, what goodness lies on the other side of that one thing in your life, falling to the ground and dying? That piece of baggage that you shed, that thing that you've been holding on to, the thing, what harvest lies on the other side of you letting go of that one thing in this Lenten season?